there was this point where I felt so distant from the world, so alone. And at this point when I would lay down to try to sleep at night, I was just so full of anxiety. Like, a little backstory, I'm a side sleeper, not a back sleeper or a belly sleeper, but when I, when I sleep, I'm on my side. And when I sleep, what happens with my arms is like the most critical thing possible. Like my arms can't be stretched down my side, they can't go above my head, they need to be perfectly perpendicular, like bend at the elbow, extended directly away from my stomach. And I have been this way for years. Hands have to be open, arms have to be out directly from my stomach. My, my wife at night wants to hold my hand. It's sweet, but I can't do it. Like I'm super particular, nothing can be touching me. But, but there was this point where I felt so much of this, this aloneness, this loneliness, right? This anxiety, so distant from the world that I remember, and I don't remember how I discovered this, but I, I, I did. I, I, would, I would take one of my arms bent at the elbow, sticking out from my stomach, and I would bend the elbow back up towards my face and bring my hand in to touch my opposite shoulder as I was laying there trying to fall asleep. And that touch, that slight little brush with myself gave this illusion of an embrace, a hug of sorts that became for those few months the only way, literally the only way I could fall asleep. Like outside of my wife, outside of my, my kids, in the darkness of trying to fall asleep when all we can face is the world that we know, that was the very best I could do to create rest. Welcome to Better Stories, season three. Five years ago, I had this, this idea. I found my, myself surrounded by folks who were living these really cool stories in their lives, people who were creating things, taking risks, choosing to love their families in super intentional ways, and I loved hearing their stories. I was just like super inspired by their stories, and I was driving down the road one day when this simple phrase came to mind, better stories. I couldn't quit thinking about my friends, about the people who inspire me the most. And I just kept thinking that phrase, better stories, tell their better stories. So I started this podcast. Like our whole motto for for better stories a few years ago was to create this rebellion against boredom. Um, we, We kind of felt like our world was full of monsters, dragons, demons, all the dark stuff. But... But like the theologian G.K. Chesterton said, fairy tales don't exist to tell us dragons exist. Fairy tales exist to tell us dragons can be defeated. I wanted better stories to be that way of telling us how dragons are defeated. So I started this podcast, and it was such a fun, creative outlet for me. It kind of became this, um, this, this source of inspiration and experimentation. I pulled off a few live events. I, I preached these sermons that I would never give in a church. They'd never fit on a Sunday morning. And... Um, I just, I loved it. And we did these these 10 episodes stretched out between 2017, 2018. And then I kind of hit a wall and I found myself short on time, right? Short of margin and short on time for creativity. And, and basically I did nothing with Better Stories for about a year. And then of course, COVID came, right? Came through our world and, and 
March 13th, 2020, just like everyone else in the world, everything stopped. So my wife Carrie and I, we brought this thing back. We thought, like, we got all this space. Surely we'll be creative. We'll have lots of fun. We'll grow to, like, 25 massive listeners. Let's let's do it. So I did it, and, and we got a few more episodes, and I finished up and um, self-published my very first book called Wonky, A Survival Guide for Following Jesus When You Hate the Church. I felt like, man, I'm I'm on my way. Like, look at this this content that I'm getting to create and all this fun that I'm having. Except that my own story, my own personal story, was falling apart. Like much of the world that I existed in was crumbling. Now, it it was a necessary crumbling, and it's brought me to today. It, it's a crumbling that. If you remember the young boy in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia who, who turns into dragon, turns into a dragon because of his greed, and, and this young boy is only freed from being the dragon when, when the godlike Aslan uses tender and tough love to scrape away his scales. This, this crumbling has led me toward a healing like I've, like I've never known. A healing that I know is not and may never be complete, but a necessary crumbling that shattered so much of me and left me hugging myself to fall asleep only to restore a faith in Jesus, a surrender to the love of the Father, and, and perhaps for the first time, an encounter with the Holy Spirit that spoke in courage and hope again. And those same words tell the better stories. And so I, I want to welcome you to episode one of a third season, almost three years removed, of Better Stories. Now, full disclosure, I have five other episodes already recorded, so my promise is we're at least going to get six episodes this season. That's my promise. And, and most of those episodes are centering on the themes of my book, Wonky. They're, they're stories of those who love the church, stories of those who hate the church, those who have left the church, and those who want to re-envision the church. I can't wait to share them with you. You'll hear two of my mentors who pastor pastors talk about the great pains that are facing those who lead ministries today. You'll hear uh, this this brilliant young sociologist share her journey and her struggle with the wonky church. You'll hear honest conversations with my wife and my best friend and fun stories about growing up in this evangelical youth group and all the good, the bad, and the ugly that came with it. But, but to start this season, I want to share my story. I want to tell you about the necessary crumbling and where it's brought me. Because well, maybe I just need to get it out. You see, for us to move forward with better stories, I have to tell you mine. So let's jump in. It's July of 2019. I'm seven years into the journey of planting a church. This thing that started with a dream of, of creating a faith community from the ground up, seeing God do amazing things, and, and he has. We've, we've baptized more folks than I can remember. We have in many ways reimagined a church culture here in our small pocket of West Virginia. We've seen families find a place to belong, unchurched people connect, leaders emerge, and so much more. But at this point in 2019, I'm feeling pretty beat down. Like a few months earlier in February of that year, we made our fifth move as a young congregation into our sixth location. And where we find ourselves at this point is this beautiful, huge building with room to grow. We have a tremendous worship space. We have a separate space for kids and youth. We have almost 200 people in worship across two worship services. And we're trying desperately to find the funding to make this purchase of this building happen. But 
by July, our chances at, at, at making this a reality, they're slim to none. Our landlord's grown impatient. He decides to, to jack up our rent to this, this exorbitant amount, at least for us in this small town, and we were forced to come up with another moving plan. Again, not even half a year into this new space. And so our best solution was to form a partnership with this small elderly Presbyterian congregation in our town. They have a great building, great building, very few people. We have some people and no building. But what this meant for us is that our two services, multiple spaces for 200 folks, will be condensed into one service at 9.30 a.m., which, by the way, is the death hour for a congregation with young families, and very little extra space. So we really don't have a choice. We make the move, and our congregation shrinks to about 115 folks. Now, let me give you the backstory of all this. Um, November of 2018, we'll, we'll rewind a little bit. I wrote a proposal for my first sabbatical a time of intentional spiritual rest, right? A time away to renew, to restore, to, to, to study, to devote meditation and prayer. Um, just this space that was really in, meant to be purposeful. And, you know, after five years of hard driving church planning and almost 20 years of vocational ministry, I saw some, some dashboard lights in my life blinking. Like as, as my seminary professor would say, you gotta pay attention to those gauges. And I, I suggested to the chair of our leadership team that it might be time in the next year for a break. So when I found out we were moving the following February, I put this whole proposal on hold. I said, it's not time. When we moved again in late 2019, I delayed the request again. I had to just keep going. Like things felt too critical for me to step away. So as January of 2020 rolls around, our congregation's nearly been cut in half. We're in this smaller space. And then, you know it, COVID hit. March 13th, 2020, right? Everything changed, even in our small little town in West Virginia. We shut down. We started digitizing everything, streaming services, Zoom meetings, Zoom family trivia nights, Zoom youth groups, Zoom kids ministry, Zoom, 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 right? Pre-recorded worship videos, pre-recorded sermons. It was the strangest thing. I'll never forget this, to sit in a church building on Easter Sunday with no one around and me simply there to hit play on a computer to stream our service to whoever might watch, even if it was 30 seconds of viewing. Now, to, to be really fair, our community was, was hit minimally in the wake of COVID. We were, as a church, shut down for a very short amount of time. We were back in person in June, and that seems so brief to me at this point. And it felt so long at that point, right? We we were back, but we were smaller. Our congregation had gone from 200 down to about 115, and now it was about 15 people, mostly my family, trying this weird hybridized way of being church in person, live streaming or pre-recorded streaming. And, and, and frankly, the sabbatical wasn't even close to being in my mind at this point. You know, in February of 2020, with the appointment of our, our new chair to our leadership team, I sat with her, I shared the idea of the proposal, but by March 13th, I put it away. Um, any idea of rest, any idea of renewal was put away for the third time. Now, while, while COVID was hard, the storm that would come, the tremors that would come late in 2020 and early 2021 was literally unlike anything I've ever ever experienced in ministry. You may be listening, you may remember how 2020 felt like this avalanche of chaos, right? Like with cultural events, it just they were picking up speed and force nearly every single week. Like, like we literally had a thing in 2020 
where we were talking about murder hornets. Do you remember that? Like, go look it up. Go read about it if you don't. But every single week, it felt like things were getting more and more intense. And so by the time we gathered again as a faith community in June of that year, George Floyd had been murdered by a police officer in late May. The election was picking up steam. People were anxious. People were fearful. We were not sure about our economy. We were not sure about our health, about our family's health. People were uh, just just feeling all this stuff, and and the the rising like climactic emotional unhealth was like nothing before. Now a little a little tangent here. I I serve as the the lead ordained pastor of a church that that functions out of the evangelical covenant denomination. This is this is our tribe, our family, and at least one of the core values of of our family is to love mercy, do justice. And that's that's based off the political, not the political, by the way, commission of Micah 6, verse 8. We are a tribe committed uh, to racial righteousness, to reconciliation, to the work of justice. And I'm proud of that. So in the cultural wake of George Floyd's death, even in our tiny, predominantly white community in rural West Virginia, I spoke to those circumstances and I challenged our congregation to breathe as Jesus breathed this life of reconciliation. And I should have felt the tremors leading out of 2020. And and maybe I did. My my memory at this point is a little foggy, but I but I remember a conversation with some some dear friends after George Floyd's death where they encouraged me to be cautious in how I handled these political issues. They were they were leery of my approach. They were loving and I will just tell you they were also wrong. In in October prior to the election that would just decimate any sense of unity in our country. I taught a, a series called Citizens, The Politics of Jesus and the Kingdom of God. We, we talked about the hotbed that was our country and what I believe was this biblical vision of engaging the times and the world around us. It was another tremor. I realize now that I had folks who disappeared for those four sermons only to return after the series was over. Like, if I miss the tremors, here, here's what I can say now. I surely wouldn't miss the earthquake. So let's, let's talk about the earthquake. By late 2020, I knew that I was tired, like everyone else. Everything that had happened, trying to lead a church, trying to pastor people at a distance, um, the politics, the cultural moments, all the stuff that was going on, I knew I was tired. I didn't know how tired, how broken I was, but I just knew I was tired. So I did what my family does. We figured out how to rest, right? Do you remember how it was like you could be judged for going places or judged for not going places? Like... There was just this weird time where we were all just judgy, right? So so our family snuck away for a family vacation right after Christmas. We found warm weather, water, and a time of quiet. And I thought, if I can just get away, I'll come back energized like I usually do. I'll be ready to leave the church again, ready to engage the world. Just give me some time and rest. The problem was when we got back just after New Year's, I knew immediately that I didn't feel rested. Like I didn't want to show up and preach on Sundays I didn't want to shepherd and care for people. In fact, if I was really gut honest, I was having a hard time loving people that fell under my leadership. I was grouchy, I was short-tempered with my family, and I was super burnt out. I remember being out on a run and hearing God quietly say to me, and I don't hear God very often, but I remember God quietly saying to me, you need to step away from this church thing before I have to take this thing away from you. And all that came to my mind was this sabbatical pros- proposal from a couple years earlier. So I, 
I met virtually with our team, with the chair of our leadership team, our associate pastor, and our pastor of care. And I told them of this idea of sabbatical and how I had delayed it for several years and and I just kept thinking it would be okay and I'd work it out, but I really felt like this was time. I told them how I was struggling. Like I said, I'm not doing well. And that's a terrifying conversation for me, by the way, but I told them this really needed to become a priority. And the reception to that conversation was loving and gracious and kind and affirming. And we were going to take it to our leaders. I believe it was the same week that January 6th happened the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, January 6, 2021, something I'd never imagined seeing, something that, like so many of us, I simultaneously couldn't believe and wasn't a bit surprised about, if that makes sense, something I had to sit with my kids and try to explain, something that I knew was one of those time-changing moments for us as a people, as a country. And and so like late that night, I'm, I'm processing all this, and, and I made a post on social media comparing two quotes from then-President Trump, one where he spoke to the crowd of protesters who would attack the Capitol a few moments beforehand, and he said, we love you, you're good people, go home. And another quote from a few months earlier when those that were protesting the death of Jacob Blake by a police officer in Kenosha, Wisconsin, were told by the same president, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And really, truly, and, and I look back and I understand how things are, are misperceived or taken wrong or, or, or like what we post gets out of our control. I, I get that. And I did make some mistakes here. But my post simply stated that those of us who were watching all that was taking place on January 6th had to at least recognize and empathize with our black brothers and sisters who had witnessed these two sentiments as so counterintuitive and difficult to stomach. Like we couldn't read these two quotes and not go, wait, there's two different experiences going on in our country right now, depending on who you are, depending on how you look, depending on where you live. And my call in this post was was intended to be, and, and I, I thought was strictly about empathy and understanding. And it unleashed a fury. Like the earthquake started. That night I got a text message telling me, I, I hope I know, I hope you know that you might lose half of your church members because of your social media. And this was from one of the most influential leaders in our congregation, in our church, and, and now his language, language was telling me it was my church, not his church. And I don't have time, and I, and I don't think it's appropriate to name all the details of what erupted in the next two months, but perhaps I could just say here that it is the most painful hellish experience of relationships and ministry that I have ever experienced in over 20 years of vocational church work. My integrity was repeatedly questioned. My family was put through the ringer. Relationships, dear, dear friendships were severed. People left. Finances were withdrawn. Threats were made. We want to see changes or we're out. Concerns and issues that I found out had been unaddressed for years were suddenly these these deep concerns, right? This is This is about the point where the chaos for me was was too much. My story at the beginning of this episode about the hug that would put me to sleep, right? About the anxiety, the, the, the constant dreams of congregational confrontations, the sadness that I felt, the for, really for the first time in my life, the depression that was setting in, the guilt for what this caused to my wife, my kids, my friends, my family. It was unbearable. And yet I, I look back now and I see another side to all this. Like, like the pain is still there. 
the wounds are still seeping, right? But, but there's more. Because in the middle of all this, our, our church leaders grew stronger. Like with a, with a generous financial contribution to make this sabbatical a reality, they buckled down in the face of this wavering conflict and the relationships, and they made my personal rest and recovery a priority. They offered me a better story. Like they went to the congregation for approval. They took hits. They made plans, and they gave me this gift of an eight-week sabbatical respite. And there's so much I could say about that season of rest. So many stories, so many tears, so many moments of quiet, moments of music, music moments of laughter, and moments of grief that really catalyzed the most powerful healing process I've ever experienced and am still experiencing. These things that began to move in my life. Like I heard my heavenly father. I felt his love. I sensed his spirit. I felt like I was walking with Jesus. And as I headed back to the church after those eight weeks, in spite of the terror, I felt the rising anxiety again. I knew two things. First, God was telling me to lead from my own uncertainty. Now, if you know the Enneagram, the personality types, I'm a five on the Enneagram. And that means I like knowledge. I like information. I like to be aware. I like to have things put together, a plan, a strategy, all the information in my head. So for God to tell me to lead from uncertainty was like saying, get naked and dance in front of everybody. It was not comfortable, but it was true. The God was saying, lead out of your uncertainty. But the other piece that I heard was just as important. I, I read this book, this, this brilliant book by a man named Martin Schlesky. And, and I was in the mountains of Colorado on a silent retreat, and, and I read this book, and Schlesky is a, a luthier, a master violin maker, and he wrote this book called The Sound of Life's Unspeakable Beauty. I'll, I'll link to it in, in the show notes, but in this book, he traces his work as a master instrument maker and how it portrays the spiritual life in Christ. And Schlesky writes these words to musicians, and as I read them, I just sobbed, and I realized how God was using these words not only for musicians, but for a worn-out church planner as well. Here, here's what he wrote. He said, you are not an artist of perfection. When every tone must be flawless, the music becomes tedious and cowardly. Perfectionism steals your personality. The pressure on your shoulders can be removed only when you understand your calling. You comfort hearts, you touch hearts, you bless hearts in your music or your calling. You make heaven's language audible so that we can bear this world and love it despite all adversities. It lifts our hearts. You must understand the meaning of your calling. You are not a performer of your abilities, but a servant with permission to bless people. And then he says, don't allow your fears to rob you of this authoritative power. If you don't take a chance and forgive your own mistakes, you will lose the power and promise of your calling. You are not led onto the stage to show what you can do, but because God wants to speak through the voice of your sound. God knows the needs and the circumstances of people listening to you, and he knows how to bless them. And so you are called to be an instrument. Lead out of uncertainty. Be the instrument you're called to be. That's my better story coming out of the earthquake. Now, I'd love to tell you it all got better. I'd love to tell you all the relationships were restored and all was well, and, and it would be, frankly, not even close to what happened. We lost more people from our church. There were uh, attempts to seek reconciliation that didn't work. There was more pain. I, I would say as a church, we barely survived. Maybe even now are barely surviving. 
and I recognize my own guilt in the whole journey. Like I said, social media posts are not a great way of creating dialogue. To be fair, neither are sermons usually. I've heard a great deal of people in the past. Like as we go through some of the content from my book Wonky this season, I'll come back to this sentiment. I I really get it when Paul says I'm the chief of sinners. Sinners, I still feel it deep in my bones. Like I grieve regularly the loss of friendships, the end of this missional unity that we had. And, and then there are parts that I don't regret. Like that post that erupted, the sentiment hasn't changed. Maybe how I approached it, but should. But, but I, I, there are parts I, I don't regret. Part of my healing has been a realization that much of what I felt and was too afraid to defend was actually just and right. And in many ways, I was sinned against as much as I did the sinning against. That's the great complexity of our relationships, right? Like we can be wrong and right in the same relationships because we're really good at causing damage and being damaged. So so let me finish all this rambling by talking about some of my own healing. It's not even close to over. There's this this author I love, Pete Scazzaro, who talks about emotional health in our spirituality. And he, he uses this imagery of an iceberg, how 90% of 80, 80 to 90% of the iceberg lies below the surface. And our lives are a lot like that. And how if we don't if we don't deal with what's below the surface, we'll never really find the fullness of who we are and who we can be. And and like, man, if that doesn't describe me, I don't know what does. The thing is, I think the iceberg is a great metaphor for healing, too. They move so slow, right? Like I, I read 0.7 kilometers per hour. That's like two laps around a track per hour. They move so slow. And yet they carry such force. Like if a ship hits an iceberg, it's almost guaranteed to cause serious, serious critical damage. I think healing is like that. My, my wife and I have this kind of informal tradition on Sunday evenings. We usually hang out. We take a walk, get ice cream, whatever we can find. And, and as we do, we talk. The thing is, for about the past two years, I feel like all we talk about is our wounds. Like all the shrapnel, all the pain, all the people that we, we love, that we miss, all the people that hurt us, all the people that we're afraid we've hurt. We have shed a lot of tears together. We've said a lot of cuss words. We've tried to name a lot of our feelings. And my God, it feels so slow. And there are Sundays where I'm like, why are we still having to talk about this? But we've given ourselves permission to do it because it feels like slowly... And I don't know if I could have said this even just a month or two ago, but slowly it feels like there's healing... It's moving really slow, and it's powerful. It's forceful, kind of like trauma, right? Like in many ways, I feel like right now I'm planting a new church. Most of the people who started with us are gone. I, I hate that. Like even saying that out loud, I feel all these things, shame and grief, um, anger, if I'm honest. Like I really, really hate that. I miss them. I think I love them still. And I've been hurt by them. And I've hurt them. But we have new people too. And, and, and if I'm honest, 
I find myself regularly wondering if they're going to hurt us too. They haven't given us any reason to think that. Like, they're kind, generous, great people. They love Jesus. It's just us. Like, we're kind of beat up, screwed up, traumatized, and, and still leading. Ridiculous, right? But maybe that's it. Maybe that's the better, better story. Like, I don't know when, but somewhere over the past two and a half years, this thing happened that made me want to create again. This necessary crumbling that about leveled me, that about took me out, that if I'm honest, at times made me want to walk away. But something happened in that process that made me want to tell stories and hear stories again. Made me want to choose life and hope and joy and laughter and really good food and drink around tables again. I'm scared for sure. Scared of who's listening, even right now, and how they might think this is all BS and me just manipulating what really happened. I, I'm, I'm terrified of that. I wish, I hope, if they are listening, we could go sit around those tables with, with good food and good drink and talk about good things, talk about good stories, and all the things we saw Jesus do. This is scary. But I'm, I'm hopeful too. And that's new for me again. And that's better. That's better. That's better. And I'm not hugging myself to sleep anymore either. I'm actually resting. And that's better too.